Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. President Xi is in Madrid addressing the Spanish Senate before heading to the G20 in Argentina. <coughs> Joining us now to talk China is Miranda Carr, Haitong International China macro strategist. Still with us, Simon French of Panier Gordon and David Riley of Blue Bay. So, Miranda, as always, thank you for joining us. We'll go on to some of the pitfalls for the Chinese economy. But first, what's President Xi in Spain for? Is he actually going to sign bilateral deals? Is he looking more at Europe as he's shunning the U.S.? Well, yes, the, the China has definitely been much more friendly to all the other countries, whether it's been Japan um, or the, um, the European countries. Um, if you look at things like so opening Allianz, AXA into the insurance market just this week, um, and then also setting up wholly owned foreign enterprises. So this is she delivering the message, we're going to open up, the, open up China to everyone else. And if the US wants to be part of that, then we need to come to an agreement at the G20. Okay, Miranda, how much should we worry about the Chinese economy? So it's, it's kind of slowing down on its own, plus you have these trained tensions on top of it. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing the deleveraging campaign. I mean, that's been held off, so you're getting a bit of a bottoming out in the in the economy overall. We're expecting money supply to, to um, rebound again. Um, but the trade tensions, obviously, I mean, the, the, the real concern is that the U.S. has shifted it just from trade tariffs into um, basically China is a national security risk across the board. So it's not just, you know, defense. It's not just um, soybeans and um, the um, uh, machinery that gets hit. It's the entire 5G raising China as a threat across the entire supply chain. This takes it into very, very different territory than just what the trade tariffs are about. But are you expecting the Chinese to retaliate? Or is there anything that China can do to allay some concerns without looking too weak? Um, well, there's very limited, without dismantling the entire sort of made in China 2025 and the state-owned um, led sort of technology development, without dismantling that entire structure, which is not likely and going to be a continued, then there's there's very limited um, action they can do. If you look at Japan, these these arguments rumbled on sort of in the 1980s and 90s for years. They, they weren't solved at one summit. Um, and you had a succession of 301 investigations, um, export tariffs, and a whole slew of things which eventually sort of they came to some accommodation but it was an ongoing this isn't this isn't just easily solved Miranda how do you feel that Europe for example Spain will do a marginally increased business with China what you know is it sailboats to India as they said in Mary Poppins I mean what actually gets done five and ten years from now with a resurgent China from Europe what do they actually do well, the thing is, the, you, you are now getting China opening up. As I say, sort of the U European companies going into China has been, a, has been a key theme over the last few months in retaliation. Um, so if China tries to um, get Europe, you, if you like, the Eurasian landmass um, joined up and isolates the US, then that's, that's 
a potentially sort of five, ten year view. But Europe's not necessarily, Europe has very similar complaints to the US um, in terms of the technology, the technology transfers, yeah. and so they're going to have to address that. It's not just um, that, you know, they can't, Europe's been resisting as much as the, but not quite as noisily as Trump. Well, it may not be as noisy, but that's right where I wanted to go. I mean, Europe has the same complaints, headaches, and fears that the U.S. has on China, right? Mm. Yeah. No, the, I mean, the interesting thing is that um, we're, we're, we're in a sort of bit of an impasse at the moment, but as we come into December in, in, in China, you've got the, the 40th anniversary of the reform and opening up, um, and the, the, you know, a big um, December celebration, if you like. And so the interesting thing is whether, whether China actually then moves to right. you know, throw open some more of the barriers, um, take down some of the, um, sort of, you know, take, scrap the negative list, scrap some of the restrictions on foreign business, and actually makes a sort of a, right. a, a big statement then, because that's, that's a potential. Uh, Miranda, I'd, I'd be remiss if I did not bring up the Taiwanese election over the weekend. It was a stunning result, as reported by Tim Culpin and our team out of Taiwan. To review this, the liberal regime, sort of anti-China, I guess, got pounded, and the old Kuomintang from another time and place really won big. Are they the same party we remember with Chiang Kai-shek? <laughs> no, I mean it's a um, a very different, um, yeah, uh, very different. Brief aside, no, but, but yes, but yes, but the but but, but this, I mean the, the the I mean obviously it looks it looks on the surface like um, like the, the the you know if you the China and Taiwanese ties are. Are, would be better, but I, I, I don't think you should read too much into the local elections. It's more what happens at the presidential elections later. To get you set up for the day this Wednesday, I love this morning note from Kit Jukes over at Sokgen. Donald Trump and Larry Kudlow playing good cop, bad cop on another private pre-G20 day. We'll get bad boy Jay Powell later, but I'm sure he won't be cowed into submission by his boss. Joining me here in New York is Tony Crescenzi of PIMCO. Tony, will he be cowed into submission on, by his boss? Is that what's going to happen later? I, well, you never know with Donald Trump. Uh, we would say, though, that about the pressure that's being put on the Fed by the, the administration, that uh, it probably won't have impact on policy in the end. This is an institution that defends itself to the core. It's a very collegial institution where they work together to provide solutions for the U.S. economy. And so they probably will not be deterred um, dis despite the pressures by the president. Um, uh, in fact, uh, we would expect the Fed to continue on its plan to raise interest rates in December, or not a plan, but the likelihood of a hike in December, and probably move again in March. Uh, before considering a pause, although a pause in March is possible. Well, let's talk about what you foresee in 2019 for the global economy and the U.S. economy more specifically. Do you see the sufficient conditions, the economic conditions arising that the Fed needs to take a pause? No, not yet, but it's expected to evolve, partly because there's a fiscal cliff coming in 2020, which, by the way, could get legislated away. It is, a, it is a, uh, an election year, after all. By fiscal cliff, we mean that, well, in 2017, 2018, and 2019, there's a boost to the economy from the fiscal side of the equation, about a half-point boost to GDP. In 2020, it's about a half-point decline associated with that, plus the lagged impact of monetary policy uh, that could make it more problematic or where the Fed should decide, let's wait and see. 
And so it's highly likely that there'll be a pause in 2019. Uh, and, and the markets then, after three years of witnessing Fed rate hikes, will have a, a be able to breathe e easier. But that said, the breathing easier may be a negative thing because if it, in fact, fuels rallies in the stock market, fuels a decline in bond yields, f fuels weakness in the dollar, et cetera, et cetera, uh, this will only boost the economy at a time when the jobless rate is still lower than the Fed might think is sustainable over the long run because it can produce inflation. So the consensus view going into next year is that we get a deceleration. It's pretty clear that you agree with that consensus Correct. view where there's real debate, of course, and there should be, is how you allocate capital with that as your backdrop. What are you saying at PIMCO at the moment? Well, uh, our, our view now is that economic growth in the United States will be between 2 and 2.5% two and down from about 3% this year. Globally, about 3%. A real GDP down from 3.3 this year and 3.3 last year. That's still a climate, since it's an, an expansion above potential, that is favorable for credit instruments, favorable for equity instruments, favorable, favorable for real assets such as real estate. So the early view should be that these assets will perform better in 2019 than in 2018. Equities, uh, for example, profit growth is expected around 10%. Equity prices tend to correlate with changes in profit growth. Didn't this year, partly because the markets were anticipating it. But that does raise the chance that equities will rise 5 to 10% next year. Core bonds, this, uh, those that are measured against the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate, current yield is about 35 and so returns will probably be in that zone. For, for corporate credit, investment-grade credit, probably in the low fours, clipping coupons. Uh, and for high yield, yeah. perhaps near 7%. But this all presumes <coughs> that there'll be uh, a feeling next year um, amongst investors that the expansion will continue into 2020 and beyond. What are you getting sensitive on us? The feeling? The feeling. The because sentiment matters in terms of viewpoints. Okay, well, sentiment matters because of viewpoints, but the idea is cash is a new asset. 12 months ago when we were sitting here, cash didn't exist. Now cash exists as a tangible asset, right? right? In fact, it's why on the yield curve, when we think of whether to be in the, and I'll describe what, what I mean, the curve steepener or the curve flattener, we like the steepener. There's more positive convexity to that. I said oh, a lot of confusing me. things there. The curve steepener is where you say, I like short uh, maturities over longer maturities because those yields could fall faster than longer maturities or perhaps rise more slowly. Now, that's an odd thing to say, that the short end of the yield curve will perform better than the long end when the Fed's raising short-term interest rates. But the convexity is good. What I mean is, if things go wrong in the world in 2019, or, or they're expected to go wrong in 2020, where is it that you'd want to be in the, on the yield curve in terms of outperforming the market? Or do you want the to just be in end? cash? That's what we would say. Or in short-dated credit instruments. There are some right. attractive instruments. Because of the <coughs> selling by okay. foreign investors due to a, a, a rising hedging I, costs, I, I want to know what you there. guys are doing in Newport Beach with leveraged loans. Everybody, even on John Farrow's incredibly successful property, the real yield. I mean, you're going to change it to the real leveraged loan, 1 right? 1 p.m. On, on Fridays on Bloomberg TV. Oh, thank you. Thank 1 p.m. Thank you. It's good to well, know that. Well, we're picking apart uh, <coughs> the loan documents to ensure sure that we're protected because what you're seeing in these leveraged loans, of course, is a, a, a reduction in protection for investors. In fact, it's, it's felt that about 80%, I saw a report on the IMF website on this, that, that about 80% of new issues these days are so-called covenant light versus about 30% a number of years ago. And, and this oh, is bringing down, well, covenants meaning what is it there in a document, the legal document that protects the investor. There are fewer of these. And this is reducing recovery values on companies that don't pay back yeah. their loans. And uh, typically they're 80% for loans and now it's falling to about 70% yeah. 
Uh, this is an untracked system. One has to be very careful. So the big question for a lot of people then, okay, I'm listening to this. I want to be up in the capital structure. But the problem is for a lot of leveraged loans is that actually there are some loan-only companies out there. So you think you're going up in the capital structure. You think you're senior secured, but there's nothing beneath you. So you're it, Correct. so, so to speak. So we would be extraordinarily cautious in that area. One area to go down in the capital structure, though, is so-called bank capital securities, those in Europe. Bank capital securities are a sliver above equities in the capital structure. In other words, if something goes wrong at one of these banks, the equity holder gets hit first, and then the bank capital holder gets hit second. So why would that be an attractive idea? Well, you only get hurt if the capital ratios of these banks, the amount of money that's invested in these banks, um, falls below a certain trigger point. And if you've done the work, and uh, you need teams of people to do this, you can shock the balance sheet of a bank to see whether or not, in certain adverse scenarios, uh, the capital levels would fall. And we think that yields in the 7 8% range uh, adequately compensate investors for investments in bank capital. So these are the today. contingent convertible bonds? Correct. COCOs, as one could say. AT1 additional tier one capital bonds. Regulators put those, created this, these bonds in order to protect. Can we just getting stuck into it? That's <laughs> all. That's all. Do you know what the most read story is on the Bloomberg? <clears throat> oh, uh, please. Can, can, we, can we try and get Tony in a bit of Let's trouble? PIMCO said to be the sole buyer of Unicredit's $3 billion bond. Let me guess, you can't comment. I'm sure you can't. Of course I can comment. But, but can, just talk to us about it a little bit. What's, what's the story there? We, we can say, I'm going to be a good politician here. Of course you can talk about it. We can say that... Th- any investment like that would indicate that an investor did their homework from the bottom up. And this is a climate for investing from the bottom up. If this were 2011, It's not 12, about 13, nations, 14, it's 15, about individual transactions. Individual transactions, including, we would say, be cautious on high yield. But, 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 we'd say certain high yield securities are attractive. Short dated high yield maturities that we would say are bend right. but not break. Okay, Tony uh, Cosenzi, uh, the, the, the guy from PIMCO is waving at me to be quiet <laughs> as well. Anthony Cosenzi with PIMCO and, of course, expert in the short-term space as well. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock? When you can invest in the entire sector, visit SectorSPDRS.com. Call them at one 866 ETFs. John Green on the screen. Futures up 10. Dow futures up 112. What question would you ask Chairman Powell today? Oh, if you don't know where neutral is, how do you know that you're a long way away from it? Which was his comment back in early October. And I think he's got to be nailed and pinned down on that to really find out whether that was a communication error, a mistake, or something he's just changed his mind on in six, seven How about when do you get rid of the dots? I mean, Tony, quickly, have they been successful? Have the uh, dots been successful? In the sense that they provide some degree of forward guidance, yes, because communication is so important to uh, Would you to get rid investors. of the dots? No, they, they could be changed, perhaps, to give us a little more clarity. And, uh, but uh-huh. I do think some degree, a degree of, of forward guidance is useful to the markets, and it does keep okay. volatility low. Okay, PIMCO's still saying go away and don't mention unit credit. <laughs> okay. That was good. That was really sweet of you. That's the kind of question you'd ask on the real yield. We wouldn't ask a rude question like that. Uh, on uh, on Bloomberg. We have an esteemed guest, I say, 
Sitting with us here at our world. See, I thought you were going to say a television celebrity. You know, he's got this is the second is act an earned, of a career. An earned celebrity. Yes, David Rubenstein and his show, of course, is peer to peer conversations. The show airs Wednesday. That would be today, 9 p.m. on Bloomberg Television, and also can be heard on Thursdays at 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio, and it also airs on. Bloomberg Television during the weekend. David Rubenstein, thank you very much for being here. Tell us about, uh, I guess he's retired uh, Justice, Justice Kennedy. Kennedy. And, and your conversation, I got to just go right, did he tell you why he decided to leave the court now? Well, I asked him and um, he gave a number of reasons, but uh, I would say basically he felt that it was time to go. He had been on the court for 30 years. He'd done a lot of great things there in his view. He wanted to spend more time with his family. He has a number of children, grandchildren, and you know he's 82 years old. And at some point, you want to spend more time with your family. And I think he felt he had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. So um, I, I certainly wouldn't fault him for retiring at that age. See, Tom, you have a long and illustrious career ahead of you. He is such an important justice. I was down in Richmond at the John Marshall uh, Fund. Uh, yeah, black tie dinner, and he did something that you rarely see at a black tie dinner. He stopped the room, and he stopped it with his intelligence. I've always taken it as a as a slight of Justice Kennedy because he's razor sharp, smart. Given people think he's in the middle and he's wishy washy, he's not wishy washy in any way, shape, or form, is he? He's a strong believer in certain constitutional principles. He was a legal scholar. Remember, after he yeah. was uh, graduated from Harvard Law School, he went back to Sacramento, took over his father's practice, but he taught law school at night for many, many years. And even as a judge, when he became a judge at a very young age, in his late 30s, he still taught law school and largely constitutional law. So he really understands the law, and it, to him it's, it's, it's a very important principle to follow the Constitution. Um, I wouldn't say he's an originalist, uh, like uh, Justice Scalia, but I would say he's somebody who really believes in the Constitution, and uh, his opinions uh, were really vital to the five to four decisions in certain important cases. For example, gay marriage, he wrote the uh, five to four decision, and really that was uh, something that changed uh, the course of our own history because it legalized gay marriage and really uh, made it possible for many people to get married who couldn't otherwise get married. Uh, the same thing is true in another case, uh, which is uh, 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 Citizens United. There's a case that some people who liked his decision on uh, gay marriage did not like that decision, but he feels strongly that uh, corporations have the right to speech, speech just as humans do, and he felt that uh, you shouldn't take away their right to make political contributions. What was the surprise of the interview? An open question is always a surprise, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Madame Lagarde, but what was the surprise with Justice Kennedy? Well, I think the surprise is uh, his humility. If you had been on the court for 30 years uh, and wrote some of the most important decisions of the last 30, 40, or 50 years, you might expect some more, I won't say arrogance, but somebody who is a little more full of himself. He's very modest. Uh, he doesn't feel that, uh, that uh, he's uh, as famous or deserves to be as famous as he's become. Um, he really sees himself as a, as a judge who is crafting very good legal opinions, but I wouldn't say uh, he had any kind of uh, overweening ego. Did he speak about the partisanship that exists in the country and in relation to collegiality, let's say, on the court? He did say that the collegiality on the court is one of its strongest uh, uh, attributes. You have people on the court who disagree with each other quite 
uh, violently in terms of their opinions for a long time. Scalia and, and Ginsburg uh, had terrible uh, disagreements in terms of their opinions, but they socialized with each other. They both loved opera and so forth, and they were very good friends. The same was true with uh, uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Scalia. They hunted together, even though they had disagreements on, on ideological matters. So he thinks that collegiality is very important. And I think that was one of the most important things he pointed out, that even though they have disagreements on, on issues, they, the court does get along quite well. And he said that the new justice um, would fit in quite well in that area. Did he speak of any of the specific issues that the court is going to face? No. Um, justices do not like to talk about uh, things that are to be decided in the future, and so therefore he did not address any. I didn't mm. really think he would. I didn't really ask him about those issues. Um, he did think that the two of his former clerks would be very good justices, and he's the only justice who had two former clerks become uh, justices on the court. And actually, in one of them, he was on the court when one of his former clerks was with him, and I asked him, well, did you tell your former clerk that he should vote with you on everything? And he said, well, it doesn't work that quite that way. Um, interestingly, he pointed out that they really don't lobby each other. I would have thought they'd go down the hall and say, yeah. well, if you vote for me, I'll vote for you. They said, he said, that's against the law. You can't be trading things like that. So yeah. no, they, they obviously trade opinions back and forth, but they don't really lobby each other, he said. Well, informative to say the least. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer -peer conversations, can't say enough uh, about it. is the interview of the day for those of you interested in the exceptionally important holiday shopping season the ups and downs of retail in america and far more the dynamics of our ever-changing luxury movement lucas solo's asolka rather is an institution at xn bmp paribon joins us from geneva switzerland luca we are honored to have you on the program and i guess everything starts and ends with what gucci wrought Gucci changed luxury. What did Gucci do to the rest of retail? Well, I think that they brought newness in a, in a, in a, in a big way. And uh, they also integrated uh, luxury with the codes of streetwear. But aesthetics uh, resonates massively with younger consumers, especially younger consumers in China. And they've been uh, soaring on this, uh, this tailwind. Within that is the Tiffany announcement today that was a little light on China. The stock, I believe, was down 11% at one point. A lot of people listening would say, okay, luxury matters, but at the margin, is it really all about China? Is that true? Well, to some extent it is, because today the Chinese represent globally about a third of the market, but uh, they account for a good two-thirds of growth. Now, what we've seen in China in the most recent months is that Chinese consumer confidence was coming off a peak. There was a significant increase in Chinese consumer confidence between mid-16 and the end of 17, which correlated with strong luxury market growth globally. And uh, we expect that uh, this macroeconomic moderation that was going on on its own in China could potentially be made worse by the international trade confrontation with the U.S. unless we have major positive surprises from the G20 meeting this weekend, uh, which we don't necessarily uh, bank upon. Luca, I just want to ask, uh, using a variety of companies, and then you can kind of parse out what you think is the most important. Tiffany, LVMH, Richemont, Caring, 
and Prada and Burberry. All luxury goods, all on Tom's Christmas list. Yep. Which are the stocks that should be on the list of investors? Well, I think that they're probably at a very different stage. On Prada, for example, that you mentioned, we see that after uh, a number of years when management was missing a beat on innovation, on price positioning, on embracing digital as a way to build the brand and distribute the products, uh, they've been uh, ticking a lot of those boxes. So they could potentially buck the trend and they could continue to produce good organic growth, but given the limited free float in the shares, uh, could potentially lift them from the lower end of the trading range they've seen in the most recent months. So in my view, this could be uh, you know, an interesting short-term long position. Well, I think the likes of LVMH would uh, catch my favor as the long-term exposure to the sector. Now, having said that, if the Chinese were continuing to be on the back foot in 2019, then even LVMH would potentially, in absolute terms, uh, moderate with the sector. So one would have to look at the long term for this one instead. Luca, do, uh, does beauty count as a luxury retail item this year? Well, it's the enterprise point of luxury goods in a way, especially when we look at couture or ready-to-wear brands like Chanel. Uh, they have a huge business in this category, Dior, as well. So it's, uh, it's the most democratic and most accessible portion of the uh, lux broader luxury space. It is distributed, though, uh, accordingly to FMCG logic. So I think that it's, uh, it's a bit of a hybrid. Yeah. Lucas Soka, one of our, uh, our themes today has been creative destruction. We've been looking at the media business earlier, uh, at Condé Nast and the Economist restructuring as well. These European conglomerates, and I know one of them got rid of DKNY, a, a name that our American uh, listeners would know, but do they need to do a culling out of brands? I mean, are they opportunistic next year into just streamlining their conglomerateness, or is that not a theme? Now, I, I think that uh, for sure, on the one side, as far as media investment and communication, we're seeing a huge shift uh, to digital KOLs and, uh, and CRM. I think that this is going to be a trend uh, for the next three to five years, and it's not going to relent. So my sense is that uh, any service providers in this space and any publishers would have to take note. When it comes to the industry itself, I would expect that in a slowdown, and if the sector got worse, uh, then we would see more consolidation. This industry is still quite fragmented, and with multiplying competitive fronts, uh, smaller and medium-sized companies have a very tough time uh, standing on their yeah. own. Uh, Luca, just uh, before we let you go, it's uh, a little chilly in, uh, in New York and in many places around the world. Do you consider Canada Goose and Montclair, are those luxury brands that people are going to continue to buy? And should people buy those stocks too? Well, they're clearly sitting at a sweet spot. I think that, you know, uh, expensive casual uh, apparel 
is, is a space which had very few players up until very recently, and Montclair and uh, Canada Goose, to, uh, to, a, to, to, to some extent, tick the box in that, in that space. I think that the most important challenge to sustain growth long-term uh, is going to continue to uh, nourish a pipeline of product innovation, communication uh, innovation, and in-store surprises. On this front, I'm impressed by what Montclair has been doing. I think that Canada Goose is starting uh, from a, a much smaller base, and therefore, they have a lot of the levers that Montclair had available no. uh, a few years ago right now, like retail network expansion. But I would like to see them more innovative on uh, the product innovation front, so to make sure that they can right. sustain and not be pigeonholed as a functional brand. Lucas Sokol, thank you so much for being with us. This is Exane VMP Paribas from Geneva, Switzerland. We're doing this, folks. We're having a lot of fun with it uh, across all of retail, across all price points, from the big boxes and the discounters up here to luxury. And just Lucas won like 18 awards. Like, you know, he's, he's won like four years in a row, institutional investor, that kind of thing. If you it's win that award, do you get the Gucci Flash Trek sneaker with removable crystals the for $1,500? The removable crystals are very, very, uh, very, very important. Nick Colas joins us right now. And there's always like eight things to talk about. Maybe we'll get back to GM and autos in a of moment. Data Trek. Of Data Trek. Come on. Excuse data me. Trek. I, I didn't take Fox 101 on how to properly introduce a guest. But Nick Colas, what I would say is Bitcoin is front and center for you. Is it a real market? You know, it's hard to tell if it's a real market. It is certainly a very cloudy market. There are certainly some bad actors in there and have been for a while, so we don't really know, but at least we know that it's getting better. The regulations are improving. Maybe in a year or two it will be a real, real market. What characterizes a real, real market other than having buyers and sellers, which seem to exist for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? Yeah, no, it's, it's the right point. I mean, what it comes down to is exactly what we have in U.S. stocks uh, and to a lesser degree in U.S. bonds. We have transparency. We have reportability. We have accountability. We have regulators that are able to oversee individual transactions and track them back to the original source. Those are the kind of things that make for a really deep, robust, and credible market. All right, so if we don't have that yet, for Bitcoin, what's it going to take? It will take what's already happened, which is a lot of people losing a lot of money <laughs> and asking for regulation. Regulation always comes after the whole horse has left the barn. Uh, and we've had that, so I do see more regulation coming in the next year because the market has been really tough this year. What do you perceive of banks doing blockchain as a process-driven uh, I guess, methodology or a process around the underlying Bitcoin, or is Jamie Dimon right, it's a quote-unquote fraud? Well, as far as the blockchain goes, J.P. Morgan actually is a leader in that space, yeah, okay. doing uh, cross-border uh, payments uh, and using a proprietary blockchain. What is, what, 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 does a, is a proprietary blockchain enjoyed at 80% decline? Like uh, no, the, there the is, Bitcoin, Bitcoin? We have to separate blockchain from these coins and assets that you we separate in crypto. Them. 
Yes, and so does okay. J.P. Diamond because J.P. Morgan has set up a cross-border payment blockchain, which 20 other banks have become involved with, and trying to facilitate this very grimy business of cross-border payments. And that's payments. separate from the currency, Bitcoin. Very separate. So, so this is a comp- so in that case, yeah, I heard. Thank it, you. So in this <clears throat> case, it's competition for a system like SWIFT, which many people are familiar yeah. with, Belgian-based, but that's an international payment system. Why is this? blockchain transfer mechanism better than, let's say, what we already have, SWIFT? Uh, because this blockchain allows you to have basically s- contract simulation inside of this system. So you don't have to go through and sign contracts and revise paperwork. It's really meant to be a better system for integrating cross-border payments. Mm-hmm. SWIFT takes care of the payment itself. This system takes care of all the ecosystem around it. I want to go to uh, GM. You you were legendary uh, on auto analysis a million years ago. The GM you knew is very different from this GM now. You lived Chrysler, Daimler, Benz, and all that. Is American auto manufacturing done? Certainly American car, passenger car manufacturing yeah. is done. We only have the, the, quote, import brands, the foreign brands producing successful sedans. So as far as Ford, GM, the old Chrysler, mm-hmm. they're just not going to make sedans anymore. I, I, I interviewed the gentleman from Flint, Michigan today, Mr. Kildee, their congressman from the 5th Congressional District. We were reminiscing about Buick City and how 28,000 employees came out of that thing across Industrial Avenue. That's the nostalgia. What does the future American auto business look like besides fancy electronic cars for fancy people like Pim Fox? As long as oil prices stay low, it looks like SUVs, pickup trucks, and a couple of minivans. It doesn't look like passenger cars for the most part. That's the near term. Over the medium term, it looks like a recession because you're going to have a recession at some point. Yeah, I think this is the key point. And come and bring demand in. How many units are they going to move? I mean, what is Mary Barra modeling for as an industry? I think she is modeling for a normalized 15 million unit run rate. We Down from 17. 17. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, thank and you. a typical recession is 13, so you got to be able to live through 13. But you also have to be able to invest 10 to $15 billion in GM Cruise to get the autonomous side going. And that's what scares mm. the entire industry to death. Should that statement also scare anybody that does business with the automobile industry? And what I mean by that is advertising. Across the board, it is a problem. It's a global problem because it takes the existing problem of the industry, which is global overcapacity by a factor of 50%, adds disruption to it, and what comes out the other side, no one knows. You don't do like a list of 10 things for 2019, do you? Do you probably get to one, yeah. You'll get to one. Okay, well, Doug Cass releases 15 smart ideas yesterday. I'm sure Doug Cass will be wrong. He's really gracious about being wrong, and there's some thought-provoking things there. What's your thought-provoking idea? for next year. I mean, he had he had Warren Buffet going after 3M. I mm-hmm. mean, just as one idea. But instead of, you know, us asking you mouthy questions, give us that thought-provoking Nick Colas idea for next year. What I worry about most for next year and for the year after is we're going to get a recession and all this technology that's gotten built up that improves productivity, employers are going to say, okay, we're in a recession. We need to fire people and replace them with technology, whether it be hardware, software, AI, and those jobs simply never come back. And the next recovery is extremely slow or non-existent. Uh, But that's a theme of most of our listeners. And we've already gone through this once with this this recovery, right? Oh, this recovery has been a garden variety recovery. It just took a long time, but we're at record levels of oil of unemployment and participation rates have hung in pretty well. 
So I wouldn't say that this has shown yeah, any evidence of that disruption occurring just yet. And you learned this at Chicago in the price theory. That's microeconomics, Chicago talk. But at Chicago, you learned that it's about supply and demand in every interest. Your theme is there's not going to be demand at the margin for labor, right? Yep, that's right. And I worry that the re next recession, whenever it comes, is going to be that trigger point when all this new technology is ready for prime time and gets adopted by corporations. All right, but all of this automation that you're talking about, robots don't spend money. So what happens to the economy? It's not good. Doesn't <laughs> sound good. No, I mean, that's, that why, that's why you have all kinds of thoughts about uh, universal basic income and other issues that tech is trying to move through this topic, but it's very hard. That could be the topic of your next book, Robots Don't Spend Money. They don't. I like not that. Not only do they not spend money, but when and you automate, a, go ahead. No, well, the, your sequel could be teenagers spend money. That's, well, there's a good point because whose money are they going to spend? Where's that money going to come from? Well, wait till you get to teenage robots. Oh, I oh, see. Yeah. Teenage robots. That's just with the, the artificial arm I believe arm I was told out. last night we have dad robot. Really? Yeah. <laughs> isn't, that that re isn't that redundant? <clears throat> yeah, it had to do with taking your cell phone away as well. Are you an Apple bull or not? I do think Apple's great as a company, as a stock. It feels like it's still in a lot of trouble. Do you think, do you think investors are underestimating the potential for a big sell-off? I don't think they are anymore. I think we've seen enough of volatility for people to wake up and realize that we're at the end of the cycle and earnings might be down next year mm -hmm. and rates might be up, and that's going to be a problem. Nicholas, thank you so much, particularly on Bitcoin there. We wanted to have a smart conversation, and you can always do that with DataTrek researchers Nicholas Colas as well. I like this. We're folks, we're, we're, not, we're not in the interactive brokers pantheon and studios. We usually are. We thank interactive brokers. Yes. But this, we're on an interactive, interactive brokers, brokers market lounge. The it's market also lounge. next door. But the coffee there is not as close to the coffee machines here in the interactive brokers remote location. Ah, I see. Here in the acclaimed Bloomberg food court. Nicholas is wondering, what are you talking about? Well, we're, we're usually Nick in our studio, which, you know, which is like deluxe and fancy and all that. But well, he's got brand new offices, right? And they're all mobile. Isn't that, I mean, no, <laughs> seriously, right. right? I mean, isn't that the issue that, you know, 20 years ago, if you were going to start a new company, go buy office space, telephones, all that kind of stuff, you don't have to do that anymore. No, my, our fixed costs between my partner are 500 bucks a month. Wow. See? That's, that That's is even less than your cell phone bill. <clears throat> Bills, plural. Yeah, well, yes. Does the, dog have a, the, does the dog have a vet mobile? Bill, vet Bill does not have a mobile phone, oh. but he's got Bluetooth. Yeah. <laughs> he's got Bluetooth. He's got it in his ear. Chip. He's going around the got house. The chip. Yeah, Vet Bill's got Bluetooth in his ear going around the house. Tuned see, into, $500 to fixed cost. Yeah, that's very cool. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.